converted books and one-click digital present Red Notice, a true story of high finance, murder, and one man's fight for justice by Bill Browder. Narrated by Adam Gruper. This book begins with the following author's note and dictionary definition. Everything in this book is true and will surely offend some very powerful and dangerous people. In order to protect the innocent, some names and locations have been changed. Red Notice, Noun. A communication issued by Interpol requesting the arrest of wanted persons with a view to extradition. An Interpol Red Notice is the closest instrument to an international arrest warrant in use today. And now, Red Notice. Chapter 1. Persona Non Grata. November 13th, 2005. I'm a numbers guy, so I'll start with some important ones. 260, 1, and 4,500,000,000. Here's what they mean. Every other weekend, I traveled from Moscow, the city where I lived, to London, the city I called home. I had made the trip 260 times over the last 10 years. The one purpose of this trip was to visit my son David, then eight, who lived with my ex-wife in Hampstead. When we divorced, I made a commitment to visit him every other weekend, no matter what. I had never broken it. There were 4,500,000,000 reasons to return to Moscow so regularly. This was the total dollar value of assets under management by my firm, Hermitage Capital. I was the founder and CEO, and over the previous decade, I had made many people a lot of money. In 2000, the Hermitage Fund had been ranked as the best-performing emerging markets fund in the world. We had generated returns of 1,500% for investors who had been with us since we launched the fund in 1996. The success of my business was far beyond my most optimistic aspirations. Post-Soviet Russia had seen some of the most spectacular investment opportunities in the history of financial markets, and working there had been as adventurous and occasionally dangerous as it was profitable. It was never boring. I had made the trip from London to Moscow so many times, I knew it backward and forward. How long it took to get through security at Heathrow. How long it took to board the Aeroflot plane. How long it took to take off and fly east into the darkening country that by mid-November was moving fast into another cold winter. The flight time was 270 minutes. This was enough time to skim the Financial Times, the Sunday Telegraph, Forbes, and the Wall Street Journal, along with any important emails and documents. As the plane climbed, I opened my briefcase to get out the day's reading. Along with the files and newspapers and glossy magazines was a small leather folder. In this folder was $7,500 in $100 bills. With it, I would have a better chance of being on that proverbial last flight out of Moscow, like those who had narrowly escaped Phnom Penh or Saigon before their countries fell into chaos and ruin. But I was not escaping from Moscow. 
I was returning to it. I was returning to work, and therefore I wanted to catch up on the weekend's news. One Forbes article I read near the end of the flight caught my eye. It was about a man named Jude Shao, a Chinese-American who, like me, had an MBA from Stanford. He had been a few years behind me at business school. I didn't know him, but like me, he was a successful businessman in a foreign land, in his case, China. He'd gotten into a conflict with some corrupt Chinese officials. In April 1998, Xiao was arrested after refusing to pay a $60,000 bribe to a tax collector in Shanghai. Xiao was eventually convicted on trumped-up charges and sentenced to 16 years in prison. Some Stanford alumni had organized a lobbying campaign to get him out, but it didn't work. As I read, Xiao was rotting away in some nasty Chinese prison. The article gave me the chills. China was ten times safer than Russia when it came to doing business. For a few minutes, as the plane descended through 10,000 feet over Moscow's Sheremetyevo Airport, I wondered if perhaps I was being stupid. For years, my main approach to investing had been shareholder activism. In Russia, that meant challenging the corruption of the oligarchs, 20-some-odd men who were reported to have stolen 39% of the country after the fall of communism and became billionaires almost overnight. The oligarchs owned the majority of the companies trading on the Russian stock market, and they were often robbing those companies blind. For the most part, I had been successful in my battles with them, and while this strategy made my fund successful, it also made me a lot of enemies. As I finished the story about Xiao, I thought, maybe I should cool it. I have a lot to live for. Along with David, I also had a new wife in London. Elena was Russian, beautiful, incredibly smart, and very pregnant with our first child. Maybe I should give it a rest. But then the wheels touched down, and I put the magazines away, powered up my Blackberry, closed my briefcase. I started checking emails. My focus turned from Jude Shao and the oligarchs to what I had missed while in the air. I had to get through customs, to my car, and back to my apartment. Sheremetyevo Airport is a strange place. The terminal that I was most familiar with, Sheremetyevo 2, was built for the 1980 Summer Olympics. It must have looked impressive when it opened. But by 2005, it was far worse for the wear. It smelled of sweat and cheap tobacco. The ceiling was decorated with row upon row of metal cylinders that looked like rusty cans of Folgers coffee. There was no formal line at passport control, so you had to take your place in a mass of people and stay on guard so that no one jumped ahead of you. And God forbid you checked a bag. Even after your passport was stamped, You'd have to wait another hour to claim your luggage. After a four-hour-plus flight, it was not a fun way to gain entry into Russia, particularly if you were doing the trip every ten days, as I was. I had done it this way since 1996, but around 2000, a friend of mine told me about the so-called VIP service. For a small fee, it saved about an hour, sometimes two. It was by no means luxurious but it was worth every penny. I went directly from the plane to the VIP lounge. 
The walls and ceiling were painted pea soup green. The floor was tan linoleum. The lounge chairs, upholstered with reddish-brown leather, were just comfortable enough. The attendants there served weak coffee or over-brewed tea while you waited. I opted for the tea with a slice of lemon and gave the immigration officer my passport. Within seconds, I was engrossed in my Blackberry's email dump. I barely noticed when my driver, Alexei, who was authorized to enter the suite, came in and started chatting with the immigration officer. Alexei was 41, like me, but unlike me, was 6 feet 5 inches, 240 pounds, blonde and hard-featured. He was a former colonel with the Moscow Traffic Police and didn't speak a word of English. He was always on time and always able to talk his way out of minor jams with traffic cops. I ignored their conversation, answered emails, and drank my lukewarm tea. After a while, an announcement came over the public address system that the baggage from my flight was ready for retrieval. That's when I looked up and thought, have I been in here for an hour? I looked at my watch. I had been there for an hour. My flight landed around 7.30 p.m., and now it was 8.32. The other two passengers from my flight in the VIP lounge were long gone. I shot Alexei a look. He gave me one back that said, let me check. While he spoke with the agent, I called Elena. It was only 5.32 in London, so I knew she would be home. While we talked, I kept an eye on Alexei and the immigration officer. Their conversation quickly turned into an argument. Alexei tapped the desk as the agent glared at him. Something's wrong, I told Elena. I stood and approached the desk, more irritated than worried, and asked what was going on. As I got closer, I realized something was seriously wrong. I put Elena on speakerphone, and she translated for me. Languages are not my thing. Even after ten years, I still spoke only taxi Russian. The conversation went around and around. I watched like a spectator at a tennis match, my head bouncing back and forth. Elena said at one point, I think it's a visa issue. The agent isn't saying. Just then, two uniformed immigration officers entered the room. One pointed at my phone and the other at my bags. I said to Elena, there's two officers here telling me to hang up and go with them. I'll call back as soon as I can. I hung up. One officer picked up my bags. The other collected my immigration papers. Before I left with them, I looked to Alexei. His shoulders and eyes drooped, his mouth slightly agape. He was at a loss. He knew that when things go bad in Russia, they usually go bad in a big way. I went with the officers, and we snaked through the back hallways of Sheremetyeva II, or the larger regular immigration hall. I asked them questions in my bad Russian, but they said nothing as they escorted me to a general detention room. The lights there were harsh. The molded plastic chairs were bolted to the ground in rows. The beige paint on the walls peeled here and there. A few other angry-looking detainees lolled around. None talked. All smoked. The officers left. Sealed off behind a counter and glass partition on the far side of the room was a collection of uniformed agents. A 
chose a seat near them and tried to make sense of what was happening. For some reason, I was allowed to keep all my things, including my mobile phone, which had a workable signal. I took this as a good sign. I tried to settle in, but as I did, the story of Jude Shao re-registered in my mind. I checked my watch. 8.45 p.m. I called Elena back. She wasn't worried. She told me she was preparing a briefing fax for the British Embassy officials in Moscow and would fax it to them as soon as it was ready. I called Ariel, an Israeli ex-Mossad agent who worked as my company's security advisor in Moscow. He was widely considered to be one of the best in the country, and I was confident that he could sort out this problem. Ariel was surprised to hear what was happening. He said he'd make some calls and get back to me. At around 10.30, I called the British Embassy and spoke to a man named Chris Bowers in the consular section. He had received the facts from Elena and already knew my situation, or at least knew as much as I did. He double-checked all my information, date of birth, passport number, date my visa was issued, everything. He said because it was Sunday night, he probably wouldn't be able to do much, but he would try. Before hanging up, he asked, Mr. Browder, have they given you anything to eat or drink? No, I answered. He made a little humming noise, and I thanked him before saying goodbye. I tried to make myself comfortable on the plastic chair, but couldn't. Time crawled by. I got up paced through a curtain wall of cigarette smoke. I tried not to look at the vacant stares of the other men who were also being detained. I checked my email. I called Ariel, but he didn't answer. I walked to the glass and started talking to the officers in my poor Russian. They ignored me. I was nobody to them. Worse, I was already a prisoner. It bears mentioning that in Russia there is no respect for the individual and his or her rights. People can be sacrificed for the needs of the state, used as shields, trading chips, or even simple fodder. If necessary, anyone can be gotten rid of. A famous expression of Stalin's drives right to the point. If there is no man, there is no problem. That's when Jude Shao from the Forbes article wedged back into my consciousness. Should I have been more cautious in the past? I'd gotten so used to fighting oligarchs and corrupt Russian officials that I had become inured to the possibility that if someone wanted it badly enough, I could disappear too. I shook my head, forcing Jude out of my mind. I went back to the gardens trying to get something, anything, out of them. But it was useless. I went back to my seat. I called Ariel again. This time he answered. What's going on, Ariel? I've spoken to several people and none of them are talking. What do you mean none of them are talking? I mean none of them are talking. I'm sorry, Bill, but I need more time. It's Sunday night. No one's really available. Okay, let me know as soon as you hear anything. I will. We hung up. I called the embassy again. They hadn't made any progress either. They were getting stonewalled, or I wasn't in the system yet, or both. Before hanging up, the consul asked again, Have they given you anything to eat or something to drink? No, I repeated. It's 
seems like such a meaningless question, but Chris Bowers clearly thought otherwise. He must have had experience with this type of situation before, and it struck me as a very Russian tactic not to offer either food or water. The room filled with more detainees as the clock passed midnight. All were men. All looked as if they had come from former Soviet republics. Georgians, Azerbaijanis, Kazakhs, Armenians. Their luggage, if they even had any, was simple duffel bags or strange oversized nylon shopping bags that were all caked up. Each man smoked incessantly. Some spoke in low whispers. None showed any kind of emotion or concern. They made as much effort to notice me as the guards did, even though I was clearly a fish out of water, nervous, blue blazer, blackberry, black rolling suitcase. I called Elena again. Anything on your end? She sighed. No. And yours? Nothing. She must have heard the concern in my voice. It'll be fine, Bill. But this really is just a visa issue. You'll be back here tomorrow. I'm sure of it. Her calmness helped. I know. I looked at my watch. It was 10.30 in England. Go to sleep, honey. You and the baby need the rest. Okay. I'll call you straight away if I get any information. Me too. Good night. Good night. I love you, I added. But she'd already hung up. A flicker of... I love you, I added, but she'd already hung up. A flicker of doubt crossed my mind. What if this wasn't simply a visa issue? Would I ever see Elena again? Would I ever meet our child she was carrying? Would I ever see my son, David? As I fought these dire feelings, I tried to arrange myself across the hard chairs, using my coat as a pillow. But the chairs were made for preventing sleep. Not to mention I was surrounded by a bunch of menacing-looking people. How was I going to drift off around these characters? I wasn't. I sat up and started typing on my Blackberry making lists of people I had met over the years in Russia, Britain, and America who might be able to help me. Politicians, business people, reporters. Chris Bowers called me one last time before his shift ended at the embassy. He assured me that the person taking over for him would be fully briefed. He still wanted to know whether I had been offered food or water. I hadn't. He apologized, even though there was nothing he could do. He was clearly keeping a record of mistreatment, should the need for one ever arise. After we hung up, I thought, shit. By then, it was two or three in the morning. I turned off my Blackberry to conserve its battery and tried again to sleep. I threw a shirt from my bag over my eyes. I dry-swallowed two Advil for a headache that had started. I tried to forget about it all. I tried to convince myself that I'd be leaving tomorrow, that this was just a problem with my visa. One way or another, I'd be leaving Russia. After a while, I drifted off.
I woke at around 6.30 a.m. when there was a crush of new detainees. More of the same. No one like me. More cigarettes. More whispering. The smell of sweat increased by a couple orders of magnitude. My mouth tasted foul. And for the first time, I realized how thirsty I was. Chris Bowers had been right to ask if they'd offered me anything to eat or drink. We had a rank toilet, but these bastards should have given us food and water. All the same, I'd wakened feeling positive that this was just a bureaucratic misunderstanding. I called Ariel. He still hadn't been able to figure out what was going on. But he did say that the next flight to London left at 11.15 a.m. I had only two alternatives. I would be either arrested or deported. So I convinced myself I'd be on that flight. I busied myself as best I could. I answered some emails as if it were a normal work day. I checked with the embassy. The new consul on duty assured me that once things started opening for the day, they'd take care of me. I got my stuff together and tried once more to talk to the guards. I asked them for my passport, but they continued to ignore me. It was as if that were their only job, to sit behind the glass and ignore all the detainees. I paced. Nine o'clock. 9.15, 9.24, I grew more and more nervous. I wanted to call Elena, but it was too early in London. I called Ariel, and he still had nothing for me. I stopped calling people. By 10.30 a.m., I was banging on the glass, and the officers still ignored me with the utmost professionalism. Elena called. This time, she couldn't soothe me. She promised we'd figure out my situation, but I was beginning to feel that it didn't matter. Jude Shao was looming large in my mind now. 10.45. I really began to panic. 10.51. How could I have been so stupid? Why would an average guy from the south side of Chicago think he could get away with taking down one Russian oligarch after another? 10.58. Stupid, 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 arrogant and stupid, Bill. Arrogant and just plain stupid. 11.02. I'm going to a Russian prison. I'm going to a Russian prison. I'm going to a Russian prison. 11.05. Two jackbooted officers stormed into the room and made a beeline for me. They grabbed my arms and gathered my stuff and pulled me from the detention room. They took me out through the halls, up a flight of stairs. This was it. I was going to be thrown into a paddy wagon and taken away. This was it. But then they kicked open a door, and we were in the departures terminal and moving fast. My heart lifted as we passed gates and gawking passengers. Then we were at the gate for the 1115 London flight, and I was being ushered down the jetway and onto the plane and hustled through business class and deposited in a middle seat in coach. The officers didn't say a word. They put my bag in the overhead. They didn't give me my passport. They left. People on the plane tried hard not to stare. But how could they not? I ignored them. I was not going to a Russian prison. I texted Elena that I was on my way home, and that I would see her soon enough. I texted her that I loved her. We took off. 
as the wheels thump into the fuselage, I experienced the biggest sense of relief I have ever felt in my life. Making and losing money by the hundreds of millions of dollars didn't compare. We reached cruising altitude, and the meal service came around. I hadn't eaten for more than 24 hours. Lunch that day was some kind of awful beef stroganoff, but it was the best thing I had ever eaten. I took three extra rolls. I drank four bottles of water, and then I passed out. I didn't wake until the plane hit the runway in England. As we taxied, I made a mental catalog of all the things I was going to have to deal with. First and foremost, I was working my way through British customs without a passport. But that would be easy enough. England was my home, and ever since I had taken British citizenship in 1998, my adopted country. The bigger picture had to do with Russia. How was I going to get out of this mess? Who was responsible for it? Whom could I call in Russia? Whom in the West? The plane stopped. The public address system chimed. And the seat belts all came off. When it was my turn, I walked down the aisle to the exit. I was totally preoccupied. I got closer to the exit and didn't notice the pilot at the front watching the passengers deplane. When I reached him, he interrupted my thoughts by holding out a hand. I looked at it. In it was my British passport. I took it without saying a word. Customs took five minutes. I got in a cab and went to my apartment in London. When I got there, I gave Elena a long hug. I'd never felt so thankful for the embrace of another person. I told her how much I loved her. She gave me a big, doe-eyed smile. We spoke about my predicament as we made our way, hand in hand, to our shared home office. We sat at our desks. We turned on the computers and picked up the phones and got to work. I had to figure out how I was going to return to Russia. Chapter 2. Thank you very much. Yeah. 
you know, a lot of the time we've spent around the country has been talking with some of the younger people and some of the people, uh, the, the youths of Ukraine, but also the young people around the world who have rallied around you as a figure. Uh, what is your message to these young people about what the future is for Ukraine, what the future is for your fight here? Я не можу нічого побажати цим людям, тому що ці люди, вони повноцінні, свободні і дуже сильні. І всі перемоги, усі витримати все, пройти скрізь вогонь, воду, як то кажуть, і саме завдяки таким людям і стоїть цей світ і є справедливість. Тож я хочу їм побажати, нема що побажати, вони it's been almost two weeks now fighting, and Ukrainian forces have been fighting. It's day, the 14th day now, and, and Ukrainian forces have been fighting very well. How long do you think they will be able to hold out without the support of foreign nations like NATO nations? Саме хотів би зберегти наших героїчних військових, але ми будемо тримати оборону нашої землі, скільки зможемо. But you know, this is a very uneven fight. This is you know, your your troops don't match theirs, your your weaponry doesn't match theirs. How do you hope to keep fighting against them? Так і є нерівні сили, у мене немає відповіді щодо часу, але і нерівні чоловічі здібності, тому що у нас героїчні люди, які відстоюють своє, а там молоді люди, які їх цього бояться, і вони прийшли забрати чуже. Can you make a compromise with Putin? Can you trust Putin? Trust? Oh no, I trust only my family. I trust my family, my people. Now when we united our great, great people, great nation, I trust Ukrainians and so far. I don't know him how to trust. How can you make a deal with somebody you don't trust then? We have to. We have to because to stop this war, how to stop this war? Only dialogue. And only dialogue with him. He is the president of Russia and Russia or fighting against Ukraine, they came to our land, to our houses, to our children. We didn't invite them, but they are, home, but they are uh, here. <coughs> and, 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 and so how to stop it? Only to speak with him, but, but, uh, but if the world will unite very quickly, the, this dialogue will be, will have another spirit. So, what would be your your message to President Vladimir Putin right now? Right now? Right now, stop the war, begin to speak. That's it. And what if he doesn't? I think he will. I think he will. I think he sees that we are strong. He will. We need some time. Thank you so much. Thank you, sir. Thank you for your time. Nice to meet you. Thank you. Okay. What have you heard about what's happening inside the city there? 
as I know, this is like a day uh, the Russian military army you go in different buildings to see the invasion. They try to change the code for uh, to uh, people and try to go uh, out for the shooting. Oh, so you're hearing that the Russians are taking off their uniforms yeah, yeah, yeah. and trying to blend in? Are you worried that they're going to advance? We're Ukrainian. We don't worry. We're fighters. As you see that, like, uh, grandmother, grandfather, Ukrainian soldiers, everybody tries to do what they can. How has it been for you and your family there? How has the past few days been under siege? Ben joins me now from Kyiv. Ben, what's the mood like on the ground? Christian, the mood here is tense and every day getting more and more tense. For the past 10 days, the attacks have been ramping up on the outskirts of the city. And really here in Kyiv, you can feel the borders closing smaller and smaller. So for people here in the city, the feeling is that soon they're going to be able to punch through the lines and the Russians will be able to take more and more control. So people are preparing themselves for that. But outside of the city, in places like Irpin, where that video was, People have been living under constant attacks for the past 10 days. Those people are streaming into the city. They haven't had water. They haven't had electricity. The reality for them is that that situation might soon come here. We're hearing reports that in 10 days, 14 days, this city, Kyiv, might run out of water. So the stranglehold of the Russian military is taking its effect, and people here are getting really nervous as to what happens next. Irpin in that clip has been a really shocking example of possible war crimes by the Russian side. But you've also been in Kyiv, Lviv, and Odessa. What are you hearing about the targeting of civilians? Well, from what we're seeing here, it's been uh, clear targeting of civilians by the Russian forces all over the cities. Uh, in Irpin, clearly, you know, the past few days, there's been really recent aggression just towards the people that were uh, walking out and evacuating from the city. But the reality is, all over the country, we're hearing reports that people are being extorted, robbed to, to evacuate these cities. Even as the Russians set up these humanitarian corridors to let people out, we're hearing that they're not safe at all. In places like Irpin, we talked with people that said to leave that they had to pay $3,000 to try to get out of the city. We heard from other people that said bodies were strewn all over the streets and that people were being attacked, not just in the crossfire, but in their homes as well. People all that we talked to were scared, were exhausted. They were saying that the Russian attacks are targeted to cause fear and frustration amongst these people. And what's the sense of you get of where the conflict is at now? So the feeling on the ground for the soldiers that we've been talking to is the past three or four days have kind of been a time of calm, comparatively. Uh, a lot of them are worried that, you know, because the shelling has been limited, because their progression has been slowed, but the Russians have been taking the past few days to really re-prepare themselves for a bigger, stronger attack. If cities like Kharkiv and Sumy are any example, then the Russians are no longer afraid to attack these places with demolishing force to really scare the civilians out. The worry is because they've used these humanitarian corridors and these evacuation times,
times to get as many people out as they can, that now the attacks will be more brutal, more aggressive, and the people left inside will be ha having to face them without the opportunity to leave like they've had in the past few days. It's hard to watch what's happening in Ukraine and support Russian President Vladimir Putin, but some Russians still do. That's in part because the Kremlin controls what information gets out about the war. They're saying footage of atrocities is being faked, and Ukraine is actually attacking its own cities. And if you try to tell the truth, you could end up in prison. Alec Loon reports. government is stopping protests against the invasion of Ukraine before they can even start. They've also taken independent news outlets off the air, banned publications from calling the war a war, and made spreading so-called false information about it punishable by up to 15 years in prison. Many foreign media suspended their reporting in Russia. Facebook and Twitter have been blocked. American journalists! American journalists! <laughs> Dissent has become almost impossible. Since the war started, police have arrested more than 13,000 protesters. doctor and anti-war activist, has been arrested dozens of times. This time, police let her go with a fine after several hours in custody. Now she's back to doing what's basically become her day job, visiting detained protesters. What does it feel like to see your country do something that you disagree so much with? I just think it's do you think Russians should have done something or could have done something? You know how 90% of the people in their life because of what they felt and what happened. I'm coming to the store and people are telling me that Ukrainian baby cracks off. Oh, they showed the way. 
Despite Western sanctions, state polls suggest 65% of Russians support President Vladimir Putin's military operation in Ukraine. Or at least the picture of it's painted by propaganda. Popular TV shows like this claim the military is defending Russian citizens against Ukrainian Nazis. One of the voices pushing that narrative is Maria Butina, who served 18 months in U.S. prison for conspiring to infiltrate the NRA and Republican political circles as a Russian agent. Now she's in parliament and voted to recognize the breakaway republic in eastern Ukraine. She's even been wearing the Z symbol that marks invading Russian tanks. Сейчас люди сам понимают, что то, о чем он говорит, это оказалось правдой. Причем чудовищно и 
President Sob was killed, most opposition politicians have either fled or been jailed. Ukraine has roughly 44 million people, more than neighboring Poland, and the majority of them haven't left the country yet. But it's important to remember this invasion just started. And before long, millions more could be trying to escape. Val Kipnis has more. Two million people have left Ukraine since the invasion started two weeks ago. Half were children who've been sent out of the country either alone or with their families. Ludmila is from Kyiv. It took her four days to get to the Polish border with her two young girls. Ludmila's husband stayed behind in Kiev, like most men between the ages of 18 to 60, who were legally not allowed to leave the country and expected to fight. Thank you. 
The European Union has thrown open its borders to Ukrainians, agreeing to shelter refugees for the first time. A sharp contrast to how it's responded to other refugee crises. Eight miles away from the border crossing is Przemysl Station, the first train stop in Poland for people coming from Ukraine. Transportation hubs are overwhelmed with people fleeing, as well as with those headed in the opposite direction, into Ukraine. Ukraine is asking for volunteers from outside the country to join them. Already, more than 60,000 men have come over to help, according to Ukraine's Minister of Defense. Many of those going back are Ukrainians working abroad. Some volunteers aren't Ukrainian and have no ties to the country. I was just watching it all the time. I couldn't sleep. I was watching it. I was going to walk. I was tired. Came home. I watched it. Couldn't sleep again. And at one point, I just choose on my own. I say, hey, I want to go there. I want to help. Do I ever speak any Ukrainian? So there is a real possibility that what you're going into is very dangerous. You may die in Ukraine. How are you sort of reckoning with that? Oh, there's always a possibility, but as long as we're able to help somebody, I can live without risk. Of course, yeah, I was thinking about it. It can happen. You go into this country and you maybe did nothing there and you're already dead because of a rocket or whatever. But if you have this in your mind all the time and you want to go there, you just get crazy. Uh, yes, it's true. I mean, I accept it. Who did you guys leave behind at home? Uh, for me, it's my father, my mother, some friends. Yeah, because nobody is happy about it that you choose to leave. I mean, I told them two days ago. And 24 hours later, I was already in the train. It was not that easy for them, and it's still not easy. So you told them when you arrived? Yeah. What did they say? Uh, basically begging me to come back, but I made up my mind. After people get off the train, most of them come up here. There's rooms designated for women and children that are meant to serve as help locations, but also just a place for them to rest and eat. The signs here say things like information about living and housing, where water and food is. Here, it just says that you can get a free SIM card. For those who don't have a ride or an idea of where to go next, most go here. 
Особенно первые дни меня трясло до такого ужаса. Я спать не могла, я просто закрываю глаза, там бомят, я их открываю. Ребенок спал, а я нет. И вот я как зомби. Офилия это single mom, who left home with her eight-year-old William and their two cats. Я в отсутствии чувства реальности, времени. Не понимаю, какая дата, сколько времени. Я не могу абсолютно спланировать ничего. Я прошу всех, пожалуйста, помогите мне, спланируйте, купите билет. Я не знаю, что делать. Потому что я не сплю, я не могу спать. Но я не могу только принять войну. Потому что абсолютно глупая вещь. Никто не хочет Третью мировую. Но, по-моему, она уже есть. И я думаю, боже мой, вся Украина теперь руины будет. У меня папа был дитё войны. Вот у меня теперь дитё войны. Скажи, что ты думаешь о войне. Страшно? Ну, страшно. Да. Ну, ты хорошо держался, молодец. Устал? Он зомби. Да. Он зомби, такой же, как мама. сегодня поспать, да? Да. Ага. Ничего, скоро приедем уже, и все будет хорошо, да? Да. Он единственный, кто не паникует. Благо, успели уехать. Но я надеюсь... You see this black box right here? Well, I'm going to show you something right now. Some people are concerned that they might have to go for a long period of time without power or electricity.